Since the beginning of 2020, the world has been dealing with the worst public health crisis in a century. How has this environment affected academic transitions? About this and other important topics is this conversation with Diana Leon Boyce in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcikowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Diana Leon Boyce. Diana is assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of South Florida in Tampa, where she's also affiliate assistant professor in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies. She got her PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, got her master's in communication at the University of New Mexico, and before that, her BA also in communications at Southwestern University in Texas. Um, uh, Diana is uh, a very prolific, even though she's only beginning uh, her career as a professor, very, very prolific author already. She has multiple papers. Her dissertation has won a very prestigious award from the National Communication Association. And the book based on the dissertation is under contract with Rutgers University Press. Her work straddles the fields of media and cinema studies, Latina and Latino studies, girl studies, gender and sexuality studies, and television and new media, among others. Diana, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for having me here today, Pablo. It's our pleasure. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, you know, I, I can't exactly pinpoint just one one specific moment, but I think it was a couple of moments that ended up leading me to one handful of experiences. So I'm going to start at that little cluster of handful of experiences. Um, so I, like you said, I uh, got my BA at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, which is just a little bit north of Austin. And when I started um, as an undergraduate student there, I, and this is something that not a lot of people know, which is really exciting for me to get it out there, but I was a theater major and I was very excited and invested in dedicating the rest of my life to theater. I had been doing theater since middle school, very invested in theater in high school as well. So actually the reason why I ended up going to Southwestern as opposed to other larger schools is because I one, I got a, a great theater scholarship and two, I was also pretty much guaranteed that within my first year, I would get to have some presence on a main stage production. So that's why I went there. 
Um, so that's just kind of the background of what was happening during my first year as an undergraduate. Um, during the summer of my first year, I it was about a six or so, six or seven week experience that I had in Bulgaria, where I went with a few of the theater people in my department, um, some of the theater professors, and we did a theater, we were involved in a theater collective in Smalley in Bulgaria, which is this tiny, beautiful town located in the mountains in Smalley in Bulgaria. And it's literally one of those places where you have to take a plane, a train, a bus, <laughs> you have to go through all of these different steps to get to Smalian. So I say that just to explain to you how remote this location was and how removed it was from any place where I had been before. I had never been to Eastern Europe and it was a, a very different experience for me. So one of the most exciting and formative aspects of my time in Bulgaria was getting a chance to interact with a lot of the other Bulgarian and Macedonian theater practitioners there, a few of whom did not speak English. So we just had to sort of figure out how to communicate amongst each other. And we formed a really nice relationship. It was me and about five or six other women. We would get together during lunch, um, sometimes during our really quick snack hours. And we would just talk. And somehow after about a week or so of um, having conversations about getting to know each other, all of them kind of approached me at the same time. And they were like, we want to ask you about your experience as, and this is the part that was really fascinating for them. They said they wanted to ask me about my experience as a Mexican person who had migrated to the United States at an early age and what that experience was like for me. And I think that this came up because a few, maybe about a day or so before that, one of my theater professors um, had mentioned that I had just gone through my citizenship ceremony and he was talking to other people and the collective and the theater collective about what that process had been like for me. So they overheard this and they were just intrigued. So they said, can you tell us about this? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? where are you born? Okay, you were born in Mexico, and then you went to the United States, and you became a citizen when you were 19. Tell us about this. So this became like a series of conversations where these awesome women were just like interrogating me about what it was like to live in the U.S. as an immigrant, what the naturalization process was like, what types of things. So for them, it was this very interesting vision of me as a quote American and I'm, I'm using my quotes here because my air quotes um, that listeners won't be able to hear but because that's what they that's how they would say it the American but also Mexican so for them it was just so fascinating and I realized throughout these like lunches and these conversations that I would have with them that all of a lot of the questions that they had and a lot of the I guess, speculations, if you will, for lack of a better term, or a lot of the things that they thought they knew about my experience all came from popular culture. All of these ideas that they had in their head about, they, we talked a lot about um, me coming to the United States from Mexico. And based on what they had seen on TV, they, they were like, did you cross a desert? Did you like swim through bodies of water? And I was like, oh no, I just came here on a plane. And they were like, what? 
like, oh, okay, tell us more about this. Um, and later on, the roles kind of switched because then I would start asking them questions. I'm like, well, where do you, where are you getting this idea from? Or like, where are you getting the idea? Like they, they used to ask me a lot about dancing because we took an Arabian dance class as part of our, um, the theater conservatory experience. And they were like, oh, well, surely you must dance, right? Like you're from Mexico and like, tell us what kinds of dances do you do? And, and then I kind of switched roles at one point and then I started asking them, right? So what kind of media are you all watching? What types of images do you see? Where are you getting these ideas, these narratives, these understandings of who I am, what my experiences are like? And I think that was really the first time that I had ever, without really knowing it, took on this like researcher role although I was not aware of it then. I was just very genuinely curious about how these women were making up their minds or coming up with these understandings about who I was. And it was all, I kid you not, all of it was based on what they had seen on TV and very specifically what they had seen through popular culture. So, you know, it, that was an experience that stayed with me beyond my time in Bulgaria. I actually... So that happened in Bulgaria. And then at the same time, based on many factors, um, when I came back home, I decided that I was not going to major in theater anymore. So I dropped the major to a minor and I was still trying to make sense of these really cool things that I had just like come across when I was living in Bulgaria for a little bit. Um, and all of that happened while I was taking courses in the communication department and also in sociology courses about culture and society and media representations. And I was learning all of these things that I think were really helping me make sense of what I had just experienced or what I was still having a hard time sort of figuring out um, based on my experience with these fabulous Bulgarian women. And um, somewhere along the way, throughout that uh, journey as an undergrad, I also decided that I still wasn't necessarily sure what I wanted to do, but I thought, you know, I think I should get a communication major. <clears throat> Excuse me. I dropped the theater major, minor, major to a minor. I'm kind of undecided right now. So I'm going to go for communication because it's, I'm learning so much in these classes. I love the professors. I had the amazing privilege of having um, Professor Hector Amaya as one of my professors there who just like opened up my eyes to so many things in terms of cinema and media and Latin American studies and U.S. Latinx studies. So I thought, I'm going to do this. I will be a, a communication major. And then in addition to that, somewhere along the way as well, I, um, I thought that maybe I wanted to sort of play along with the, play, play around with the idea of uh, being involved with news, news production, news making, reporting. So I actually worked at the Univision in Austin while I was an undergrad for about three and a half, almost four years. I started off uh, doing community events and community affairs, um, doing a lot of community outreach, and then moved from that position into the actual newsroom where I was writing some stories, editing stories, and I did a very, very little amount of on-air reporting. Um, but what happened there while I was working at Univision kind of came together with the experiences that I had had in Bulgaria in terms of making sense of media, 
media representations, what types of images are circulating about Latinas, about US Latinidad, also about Latin America at large, like what are these images and what are they telling other people? Um, and what I actually noticed at the station, and I'm always very careful and mindful about how I frame this because it was a great experience, but everything that happened was always very strategically guided by what is gonna get us the most ratings. So whether that had to do with like what type of attire people wanted to wear on air, what types of news stories were covered over others, whether somebody should heighten an accent or whether they shouldn't, all of those decisions were at the end of the day driven by that famous line about, is it gonna help our ratings? If sweeps were coming up, we had to be really mindful of the fact that certain things had to be switched around in order to give priority to whatever it was that was going to bring us the most amount of viewers. So <laughs> I also decided that I didn't want to do that. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not doing theater anymore. Um, I've realized that I don't want to continue working at a news station. I don't want to make news. I don't want to be behind of or in front of the camera. What do I do? Um, and it was right around this time that uh, my university, the communication department, had decided that we were going to do the first ever cohort of uh, undergraduate capstone research papers or research seminars. So before my cohort, everyone in the communication department as a major had to do an internship. And then I think there was a small write-up that you had to produce after the internship. So this whole time, I thought I was going to be doing an internship. I Initially, I thought that it'd be great to do an internship at Univision in Miami. But then when I decided I no longer wanted to work there, I was like, oh no, where am I going to go? Um, but uh, Dr. Julia Johnson, who was just such a instrumental person for me in you know, helping me understand that I could go to grad school or that I should go to grad school was the one who reached out to me and said, hey, I really think you should consider doing this seminar um, or this, uh, this capstone class. And I said, I don't even know what this means. This seems like, it sounds like it's very research intensive. And that word scared me because I wasn't necessarily sure I knew what it meant. And she said, no, you'd be great for this. I've seen your writing, your, um, you're going to be well-suited. And if you really want to do the internship, we can also figure out a way to have you do both. But then I decided I didn't want to do the internship. I actually just was going to devote myself to this research project. And through a series of conversations that we had and through her like engaging my interests and my understandings of the field and all these other subfields that I wanted to focus on, um, I decided that I was going to do an ethnographic project um, that consisted of participant observation, interviews, and focus groups at the news station. So that actually required a little bit more work than I thought it would in terms of gaining access. Um, I had to talk to a few people and uh, the GM, the general manager at first was like, what are you going to do with this information? <laughs> And I'm like, I'm just going to present it at Southwestern University, I promise, and nothing more. Um, so it, it, this was actually maybe my first experience in terms of that gatekeeping. Uh, he, he was the only person who was really on the fence about, what is this? What, what is this IRB paper I'm signing? What's going on? So I was able to get IRB approval. I did the project. I interviewed seven 
was it seven? Yes, seven Latinas that worked at the station. Three of them were uh, on the sales team and the other four were um, on the new side of things, either like the, the weather person or three different reporters um, on air talent. And I, I did this project that back then I didn't realize it was so large scale, but then my advisor said, oh, this project was huge and it was phenomenal and it was really big for an undergrad. Um, I did this, this long ethnographic project that was about, it took about a year to do the whole thing. Um, and I just basically wanted to make sense of and understand how they were envisioning their role as media creators and also like salespeople of media that represented Latinas, this like gendered Latinidad and how they also as consumers were making sense of these images. So how is the role as consumer and producer and media salesperson affected by all of their various positionalities and identities? And, you know, some of them were immigrants, some of them had been born here, um, just, you know, women of all ages. And even when I wrapped up this project, um, I felt like there was so much more I wanted to learn and so much more I wanted to do and so much more follow-up work that I wanted to conduct. And I was sitting there with all this data and I thought, well, what happens now? So I actually finished my co coursework a semester early and that following semester before graduation, I had many conversations with Dr. Johnson where I just said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what my options are, but I want to keep doing this kind of work. Like, can people do this for a living? <laughs> so that's when she said, we need to really figure out how to get you to grad school. And I thought, oh, like, what does that mean? I, and you know, I, I'm a first generation college person in the US, but I, I say college person, that doesn't even mean much, but I'm trying to like, I have family in Mexico like I have doctors and lawyers in my family. So I know of the possibility of like what happens beyond when you're an undergrad, but never anybody in academia. So in my head, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to med school. I'm not going to law school either. Like, what does it look like when you don't pursue any of those? So for me, it seriously was confusing. I thought, what do you do? What do you study? How do you do it? And, um, she walked me through that whole process beautifully. And as she had this shelf that was like, she would call it, it was my shelf that she had there for me with like all of the Latina media study stuff. And she turned around these two books. It was the Latina in the land of Hollywood and the Latina media studies today. And she goes, wouldn't you want to go work with this person? And I was like, I don't know, where do they work? So that's when I started like doing my research. Um, I looked to see where Dr. Valdivia was working. Um, I thought, oh yes, I wanna go here. I wanna study with her. I did not get into the ICR the first time that I applied um, straight from undergrad. And um, John Narone was so wonderful and kind as to email me back and say, you know what? It, you really should apply again with a master's. And I thought, okay, all right, I'll do that. I'll go get a master's and then I'll come back. Just you wait. <laughs> So I did, I got my master's. It was a great experience. I got my master's at the University of New Mexico. Um, I worked with some fabulous people there. And that was my, my first opportunity to actually teach my own classes at the undergraduate level, which I, I loved. I adored that experience. 
I know a lot of the people in my cohort um, and even in the PhD cohort that came in with me were not very big fans of teaching. <laughs> they were like, oh no, we just want to do our work and we want to do our research and this teaching stuff isn't really for us. But I had kind of like the opposite experience, you know, because I had never actually formally taught in a classroom setting. And I didn't know either that as a grad student, they just kind of throw you in there. And at least at UNM, it was like, all right, good luck, Diana. You get your first face-to-face, -face, two sections of public speaking, have fun. And I'm like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. All right. So I had that experience and I loved it. I was doing that alongside my research. And I thought, okay, I, I do want to continue on. I'm going, going all out, applying to Illinois. That's actually the only place I applied for, um, for my PhD. And I knew, and I had already been in conversation with Professor Valdivia before that, um, you know, letting her know who I was and what type of work I was doing. And then I went in and I did what a lot of people advise you not to do. They say, don't just go someplace to work with somebody because it might not work out. And I didn't listen to any of those people. <laughs> and I, I did just that. But um, although I know that everybody has different experiences for me, it was an amazing experience. It was everything that I had expected and then a million times more because Professor Valdivia was just such an, and she is, she was and is continues to be such an amazing mentor and role model for me and now co-author and friend. And I just never imagined it would be all that, which it ended up being. But I knew that I wanted to go there. I knew that I wanted to work with her and Isabel Molina Guzman and Lisa Cacho and all these amazing people at Illinois because it's such an interdisciplinary program. So I knew that I wanted to work from people with people from Latina Latino studies, from women and gender studies and, and all over the campus. So I ended up going um, and that's where that was actually the first space where I became acquainted with the field of girlhood studies. And um, since then, I expanded my work in that sense to also include that generational category of girlhood, which I found out early in my time at Illinois was um, much more understudied than I thought it would be, especially in terms of that Latinidad element or that Latinidad focus. So in a really long, <laughs> this is a long way of explaining how I got here, but that's, that's kind of where I am today. That's kind of how I got to where I am today, I should say. What a great journey. Um, absolutely fascinating. So in a sense, you've gone full circle. So you, your, your academic or scholarly curiosity was triggered by the study of popular culture. Then you went to news and then you went back to popular culture. Right? Yeah, yeah, in a way, yeah. How, how did that, I mean, you were so beginning to do work on news. How did you switch to study what you study now? And how did you choose to study Disney, you know, uh, Elena de Avalor, etc. How did that come about? Well, then when I was doing the work at the news station, I actually wasn't taking any classes at Southwestern University that had helped me or guided me at all with what, in what I was doing there at the news. Uh, actually, some of my colleagues were coming from the University of Texas, so like in internship programs, and they had like really formal training in like news making and news production. And I'm over here coming from a liberal arts college where I'm learning about hegemony and ideology and like all of these things that people are like, well, you're not going to use that to make the news. 
you need a here, let me show you how to work this camera and how to edit this stuff. And I was like, okay. So at that moment, I was learning like the on the ground stuff of news making and news production while I was learning vastly different things at as an undergraduate student at Southwestern. But I felt myself gravitating so much more to what I was learning at Southwestern and how to apply those concepts that I was learning to what I was seeing unfolding on the ground at the news station with the types of stories that were produced, with the conversations that were happening in the newsroom, not on air, like off air and on air too. Um, but then, so how did I get to study about Disney? That's a great question. Um, I Every time I tell this story, I feel like people might not believe me because it happened, like the timing of it all. I promise you this is how it happened. But um, I, my, after my first year as a PhD student working with Dr. Valdivia, I, I approached her or right before the second semester was over. And I asked her if we could do an independent study uh, because I was really fascinated with this thing called girlhood studies. I was, I, you know, I had never really formally heard of it in that way, at least the way that I was learning about it um, through a small portion of our pro seminar course, which is a requirement for ICR students. And I was like, what is this? What is this girlhood studies thing? So just like Dr. Johnson, I don't know, I guess. I'm the kind of person that lends herself to people making shelves for me. Just like Dr. Johnson, Professor Valdivia made a shelf for me in her office that was like all her girlhood studies books. And I can like still close my eyes and see that shelf. Um, and it, it was a huge, huge like pile of books and encyclopedias and work dating back to like 1970. And, and I thought, I have a lot of work to do. This is, I'm, I mean, I'm not claiming that I'm discovering this, but I have actually never, you know, I didn't even know this, this was a thing and I, I feel so silly, but I want to learn all about it. I want to possibly conduct some type of research in this area. So how can I get started? So we did an independent study that summer where um, we, I, I was starting off, uh, it was, it started off as like an annotated bibliography then turn into this huge, huge literature review that I actually still refer back to sometimes. But I just like would go back home with like piles and piles of books from her office. And, you know, was looking up everything that I could on, on girlhood studies, girls' media culture. And halfway through that experience, I was like, where are all the books and all of the resources on like the Latina girls? You gave me the stuff that you've written and that's phenomenal, but where's all the other stuff? And Dr. Valdivia was like, there's practically none. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. Okay, I have to do something about this. So this is a part that really did happen this way. A week after I had this realization, I'm walking down the stairs back from Professor Valdivia's office down to my car and I'm scrolling Instagram as I would sometimes do as I was walking, which was probably not the safest choice. And I saw on my Instagram that Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin and Jenna Ortega from Jane the Virgin were promoting Disney's first Latina princess. And I was like, oh, what is this? So I kept scrolling and I went deep into the hashtags and I got in tune with Disney pages and all of these uh, different channels. 
And I thought, this is fascinating. This is what I'm going to work on. So on during the summer, after my first year as a PhD student at the Institute of Communications Research, when the series was being announced, um, I said, I am somehow going to make a project where I focus on this one series through various different facets, like various different um, ways of looking at it, because not only is there a gap in terms of writing about issues affecting Latinas and Latina girls, especially pre-tweens. Pre-tweens is an area of girlhood studies that is sorely understudied. There's much more focusing on teenage girls and even tween girls. But when we get into that category of childhood, there's very little desegregation between girls and boys at that level. So the research kind of just lumps them all together. Um, I thought I have to dive into this and I really want to see what Disney's doing here and how they are approaching this. Um, so that's that's really how the, the Disney interest began. It began specifically with Elena of Avalor. And then it branched off into analyzing and interrogating Disney more broadly, but because I was focusing on Elena of Avalor. That's fascinating. Um, going back to before we... we you know, talk a little bit more about your research on Elena. Um, your experience, experience as a PhD student, um, Urbana-Champaign is a very different place from, uh, you know, the part of Texas uh, where, you know, your undergraduate program is located and also very different from New Mexico. Um, how, how was your experience in the program shaped in part by your positionality, not only in that program and in that university, which as you say, have lots of resources in this area, but the location in general of the town and the part uh, of the state of Illinois where that town is located. Yeah, it, it was unlike any place where I've ever lived before. And at first it was, um, a little bit more shocking than, than I had expected. I actually came from a really unique situation because, and this is my fault because I didn't do enough research. So if I had done the research, I'm not sure that it would have really changed my decision. But I, I came to study at the University of Illinois having lived in Austin before that. So I had a little gap between University of New Mexico and Illinois because I had my daughter. So I lived with my daughter and my partner in Austin. And in Austin, and this, this is going to answer your question. I'm not <laughs> trying to go around about this, but because it has a lot to do with the demographics and the setup of where Urbana-Champaign is. In Austin, as I was trying to figure out how to raise a two-year-old bilingual daughter, there are over 35 dual language schools in the Austin Independent School District. And there are a lot of immersion programs um, for six-month-olds all the way up to four-year-olds. So I just thought, this is the case everywhere, right? Nope, nope, nope. Foolish, Diana. You should have done your research. So I get to Illinois with my two-year-old daughter, who at this point, she only spoke Spanish. Um, that was her first language. And I thought, you know, when she goes to school, she'll learn English, no big deal. Um, but I wanted to put her in a bilingual program or some kind of immersion daycare. I just figured I'd get to Champaign and I would be flooded with options. 
also a first time parent. I, you know, I should have known that parenting is much more challenging than just wanting to get somewhere and <laughs> do things just the way I want them to work. Um, I realized that there was no such option in Champagne. And that is when I was just kind of thrown aback. And that allowed me to also, you know, really look around in my surroundings and, and, and realize how different it was to any other place where I had previously lived. It was really that um, experience with not finding the immersion program or not finding the dual language option that I was hoping for that, um, really allowed me to, to understand those differences. Although later, whenever, three years later, um, I did end up, I did end up enrolling her in a, in a dual language program, which was a phenomenal school in Champaign. I loved it. It was a dual language program, um, that belonged to the district, but that was the setting outside of the university, you know, and, and the community, um, and, and this is, a, it's a very small space. So Urbana-Champaign is a very small area, smaller than any other place where I've ever lived. Um, but when you go into the university setting, like the actual space of the university, I have really never been in a space or a situation that has just such a, like a rich and dynamic intellectual community. It was unbelievably beautiful and fascinating. And we're talking about people from all over the world, not only professors, but guest speakers, students, um, a very large international population from China, which this was actually the first time that I had ever really been you know, in an intellectual community around so many people from China, which was just amazing. It provided me with just so many different experiences, unlike any others that I had ever had before. Um, and I think that the way that I grew intellectually as a scholar, I don't think it could have happened in the same way in any other setting. I mean, I had really unique experiences both at Southwestern and also um, in Albuquerque at, at UNM, but I see sometimes I even struggle to find the words to describe what it's like to be in that Urbana Champaign community at the University of Illinois, because there is always some kind of fascinating, stimulating intellectual experience waiting for you at every corner. And I am really glad that I actually took um, Professor Valdivia's advice to try to go to as many lectures on campus as possible, mm -hmm. because that just opened up my awareness for so many things. And it wasn't just restricted to my field. I would go to talks in the English department and the education department. I went to this fabulous presentation on the history of coffee. And I, it's just all of these different experiences that I never, never had anywhere. And in addition to that too, um, I also learned early on that job talks are public. So I went to a lot of job talks, um, which is something that I think a lot of people, a lot, some people, I shouldn't say a lot. Some people in my department were sometimes like, why, why are you going to all these job talks? And I would go to them even when I was like a first year student and not even all in my department. Um, I actually ended up going to a lot of amazing job talks in the Department of Education. <laughs> so I, you know, all of that to say is that I never felt like there was any type of 
intellectual brain explosion moment missing from my time there. Although again, I will reiterate that the university campus life is, is different from the life outside of that like very beautiful little intellectual bubble community. Um, so there was always this interesting divide. Like when you're stepping off campus, sometimes it felt like I was like a different person. Like I was stepping off campus into like a different non-academic life, if you will. But U of I in particular, the ICR and the really interdisciplinary program that it is shaped so much of who I am today and how I understand the fields and the various subfields that I engage with. Cool. And if you have to summarize what you learned from all these job talks, what would you say are your three, uh, you have an expertise on job talks now, so I am I'm <laughs> curious. Um, uh, what would you say are your top three lessons? So these are the things that I, the main three things that I learned from attending so many job talks in, in, in different fields. The job talk expert here. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm, I'm certainly not a job talk expert, but um, I think one of the things that stood out to me, so number one that stood out to me from the very beginning was confidence and confidence in what in your in your work right and that directly ties to this idea of you are the expert of what you are presenting on and initially I, I really tried to bring together all of these uh these the more fabulous of all the job talks that I saw and really think through how it was that they were positioning themselves as experts and what they were talking about. And then I try to translate that into my own work. Because a lot of times if you're like newly approaching um, uh, like a topic or, or some kind of a, a subfield or something, you feel a little bit, at least for me, a little bit like a non-expert. And you don't, you know, you want to make sure you include everyone and in everything you possibly can. But I think one of the first things that stood out to me was that these people, and, and they weren't always the ones to get the job, but the people that I think really exuded that type of like confidence and understanding about their work were the ones that I, at least as an audience member, really was able to relate to like, oh, this is really cool. And I think a lot of it has to do with how they're presenting it and how they're positioning themselves as an expert. Um, Another thing too that I noticed was, I guess, like a sincerity because, and I, I, maybe that's not the best term to use, but I feel like sometimes even as or early on in my days of going to job talks, when I didn't even think of what it would be like to be on the job market, I kind of could tell when people were I don't wanna say the word force, but when people were trying to plug themselves in a position that maybe wasn't necessarily written for them or for their work, which honestly though, here's, here's something that I have to say about that on the back end. I would sometimes see those people getting the positions <laughs> and I'm like, but wait, I thought the job call was X, Y, and Z. So I don't know, there's something else going on there behind the scenes, perhaps. And I know that all search committees are different and, you know, but I feel like it always stood out to me when people were trying to really explain, even though, for example, even though this is a job call for a geographer who specializes in Japan, my work 
and it would be something that's not necessarily geography or Japan. And it would be like a really long winded way of explaining why they were the perfect candidate for that job. And I feel like that. I never, I, I was never on the lookout for that because honestly, a lot of the job talks that I would go to, I wasn't always fully aware what the job call was. <laughs> so I would just find out through various ways and I would go to these job talks, but I never fully knew like what, sometimes I did know what the call was for, but other times I didn't know. But those moments stood out, right? When the person I felt was really trying to mold themselves into a position that perhaps might not be the best fit. So I don't, I don't really know what to say about that though, because like I said, sometimes these people ended up getting the job. Um, and the last thing, and this actually is a little bit independent from, like it's, it's in addition to the job talk, but it comes from a few experiences that I had, like actually interacting with these people and maybe going to lunch with some of the candidates. And these were some of the ones that were in my department or in some of the departments that I was affiliated with because I also taught in gender and women's studies and in Latina Latino studies. So these are experiences from all of those different places on campus. But one of the things that I really took away from those one-on-one -on -one interactions with these candidates was Again, I'm gonna lightly use the word sincerity here, but when people that were on campus from somewhere else that seemed to genuinely want to know about, I was a student, remember, I was a student. So a lot of times when candidates come, they don't care about students because I am not going to be on that committee. I'm not going to vote, but it was really, it was striking to me in, in a good way when the candidates were like sincerely and genuinely interested in me and my work and how I fit into the department. And hey, can you tell us a little bit about this institution? What do you think about this? So I remember this one candidate, we, we talked quite at length about coffee shops and they were a coffee shop lover like myself. And I was like, well, if you go to this one, the chai there is really good, but the espresso is not as good. So maybe if you want a dirty chai, you get an espresso from this place and you get a chai from here. And I had some experiences that were not as, um, not as pleasant, if you will, with candidates that you could tell were just like, you're a grad student. I couldn't care any less. And that is something, that last point is something that I really took with me to my job talks because I, I genuinely care and am invested in graduate students and where they are in the department, what their hopes are, what they see as like the strengths or the issues with the department. So I really made an effort um, to not only get to know these students, but also to hear what they had to say about whatever they had to say about the campus or the department. So that's, that's one of the ones that I was like, I don't want to be like some of those people that just rush off to the side, the person who is a grad student. Cool. So with all this expertise and all these experiences, how was your own job market experience? It was, honestly, it was interesting, but I think that a lot of the job market experience has to do with luck. And I think I got very, very lucky. So I actually went on the job market twice. The the first round was my soft, <laughs> soft job market run. And I, I really didn't feel 
like I was at the point where I wanted to be on the job market. I hadn't even finished the dissertation. I still had this chapter that I was kind of really worried about because I wanted to put so many different things in it. And, um, but you know, my committee and I decided that I was just going to apply to five places, five or six, um, just as a test run. So that's how I went into it. Um, before having finished my dissertation, I did a soft test run of the market. And actually later, I, I was talking to a friend of mine in poli-sci um, at the University of Texas. And she says that in the political department at UT, they pretty, I mean, they, they can't make you do it, but they pretty much say like, you have to do two runs. You're doing the first try. Sometimes people get a job that time. And then you're doing the second one with all of the experience from the first, um, but perhaps with your dissertation already defended with all of these publications, et cetera. So I went on the first round um, and it was, I got much further than I thought I would with two places. <laughs> and I was so shocked because I, <laughs> I thought, I, you know, I wasn't ready for this. I kind of just thought I was going to, my, my biggest goal was to get together really good templates for my um, cover letters, for my like uh, diversity statement, for my teaching philosophy. And I thought, you know, I'm probably not even going to get a phone interview. Um, but I, I ended up getting really far with these two places. And it was actually really nerve wracking because a, I didn't have my dissertation completed. And B, for various personal reasons, um, we had decided that financially it wouldn't necessarily make sense for us to move at the end of that year. So my partner and I had already made an agreement that if I did get a job, we would have to be separate for seven months. So it, it was all financial, right? It was because of his retirement and all of that. Um, but I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want to be away <laughs> for seven months while I start a new job. I'm thinking who's going to stay with my daughter? Am I going to be away from her? Am I going to be single parenting her while I start a tenure track position? Like, how am I going to do this? So all of that to say that I didn't feel like I was necessarily ready to take on that leap. But I also was very aware about the fact that I could have awful luck the next year. And I kept thinking like, what if, what if I get a position and I turn it down and then next year I don't get any, you know, um, but things ended up working out at the end of the day. And I, um, so by the spring of that year, when I had gone through the whole process and didn't end up getting the jobs, I, um, I was like, okay, this was good practice. I actually made it way further than I thought I would. Um, and now this is a part that worked out really, really well for me. I had that time to focus on creating a really clean final product for the dissertation. So that entire summer, I really worked on it um, and added a lot of elements that now, when I look back on it, have allowed me to continue with the timeline that I have with the book because it allowed for me to add different layers and elements that I don't even know how I would have been able to add those had I been doing that whatever all of the stuff that I did while I like while being a first year on the tenure track so I was able to produce a product that I was really really proud of instead of scrambling last minute because I had a job and then I defended um, the second week of that following fall semester which worked out really well because then when I went on the market, I, again, for what I called my, my official run, 
which was like, gosh, like up, applying to like 35 and plus jobs. Yeah, <laughs> so it was a really intense run. But when I went on the market, I had just defended the dissertation. I could talk about how that was completed, what my future plans for that were. And also um, one of the things that I did the second round, because my work is so interdisciplinary and because I do have experience working in various departments, I applied to, I cast the net really wide. I did communication, media specific places, gender and women's studies, Latinx studies position, just positions all over. So I had different files for myself <laughs> for the different types of templates for all, you know, you have to highlight different things or at least move up certain things if you're applying for a position in gender and women's studies versus if you're applying for a position in the communication department. So it was a really, really hectic um, year for me with all of the applications and um, also trying to transition from thinking about the dissertation as a dissertation to then thinking about the dissertation as a book. Um, but all in all, at the end of the day, it worked out really well. Um, I think it was a smoother process than I thought it was going to be. But I want to say again that I think a lot of it had to do with luck um, because I know a lot of amazing and brilliant people that do phenomenal work, just as phenomenal as my own, who, you know, are trying for, you know, however many times on the job market because it's just really challenging right now. Absolutely. But in your case, you had luck and the record to back that up. Um, a little of both, yeah. <laughs> so, so I have two questions that are related but are different. I have to do with transitions, right? You just mentioned the transition from the dissertation to the book. It is also a transition from being a graduate student to being a tenure track faculty member. Yeah. The two have to do with professional identity transitions, right? As a writer and as a teacher. And you have been going through those um, in the middle of the world's public health uh, crisis in a century. Um, how has that experience been for you? And what have you learned along the way that you could pass on to others who will have that journey at you know, some point in the future? Well, hopefully they don't have the journey amidst a pandemic because that part is honestly, it's been really traumatic. And that is the best word that I can think of to describe the experience because it's, and, and I'm very careful in saying that because I've been very lucky. I, you know, I haven't experienced any losses because of COVID. I, I was never infected up to my knowledge, but I do feel like I was robbed of so much. I never, I didn't have a graduation ceremony, which was just a huge deal for me because I didn't get to have a master's graduation ceremony either because I had just had my daughter. So I skipped that one. And I had all of these hopes for my, for my PhD graduation. My grandmother had a ticket from Mexico City to come to the graduation as well. And, you know, obviously we had to cancel that before the graduation ceremony was even canceled. We were just watching the numbers and seeing everything happen so frantically. I didn't get to say goodbye to a lot of people. I didn't get to have the goodbye party that my advisor was always saying that we would have. And I feel like it was a very anticlimactic moment. I was very nervous and worried about the state of the world and actually surviving a move from Illinois to Florida, which was exploding with COVID. I, when I moved here, it was 
Florida was just drowning in COVID cases. So it was a very anticlimactic transition for me. And also very, it seemed just very hectic and rushed. So right now I'm, I'm mostly referring to the transition from student to professor um, because there are just so many experiences that were not a part of the, of the transition of the situation. Orientation, new faculty orientation was very different. I have not been able to form a really strong sense of camaraderie with my department because I don't, I haven't seen anybody since my job talk. I mean, I see them on these little squares when we have faculty meetings, um, but I haven't been able to develop those relationships and I don't even have an office on campus. I mean, I've, I went to campus once to get my ID and that was back in August of 2020. And that is the last time that I've been on campus. So it's a very strange feeling. It's a very strange position to be in as a first time faculty member. This is my first year. I just wrapped up my first year on the tenure clock. And this might seem silly, but I had all of these like dreams and visions of what that would be. All of these ideas and ways in which I wanted to decorate my office and all of these like things that I had been like building up in my head that never happened. I mean, hopefully they'll happen soon, but it's that first year that those experiences weren't there. And I was meeting all of my students virtually through Teams and just conducting everything through a screen, which became really, after a while, it became really exhausting. And like I said, traumatic, but traumatic in the sense of like trying to figure out how to survive this pandemic in Florida, which is, I think, a very unique situation to be in. Um, so that transition uh, has been strange. I'm still, I'm still trying to think of what it's going to look like post pandemic when we're all, I mean, and we're not at post pandemic yet, but when we are like back in a space together, because I feel like it'll feel so new to me, even though I have been an assistant professor in the department for a whole year. So very, very strange. Um, and and the, the other transition from dissertation to book actually has been a lot more natural. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how or why. No, I do know how because I have amazing guidance from Professor Valdivia. And because, like I said, I, I developed a product, an end product that I was really proud of that needed a couple of additions to get it to the book stage or the book shape that I wanted to be in. Um, but that actually happened much faster than I anticipated that it would, especially with the pandemic, um, because I just thought I'm going to have to give myself an extra year or two for everything. But I think one of the things that happened is that because there wasn't any commuting, because I was just home all the time and not doing anything really, not taking my daughter to extracurricular activities, e-learning, all of this stuff, I was really mindful of um, using those moments, those extra moments that I had as best I could to just focus on the book. So I did work on a few articles here and there along the way, but my primary focus was get the proposal out by the first semester of uh, your experience being a professor on the tenure track, and then my goal was to have a, an advanced contract by the summer, which thankfully I got a little bit before that, because then 
I just thought everything after that is going to, you know, move a lot smoother once I have all of this, um, you know, solidified and in the books. But what was also really helpful is that from the very beginning, when I was writing this, um, I was writing it as a book. I was writing it as the book that I wanted to produce later on. Although I have added quite a bit because it was a text that came out when I was, you know, in the midst of this project. So there's been a lot of updates and innovations. I, the, the chapter that's in my dissertation for the theme park is actually just the California theme park stuff. And I've added a lot of other layers because of the Florida visits that I, the Florida theme park experiences that I did a, a year later. So there's a lot that I've added, but the whole time I've been approaching this dissertation or I had approached the dissertation as a book project. Um, and I think that made it really easy. So if I could give anybody advice on how to do that, it would be to approach it as a book. If that is what you want to do, some people choose to do like the journal articles and various things. But if you do want to do a book, I would approach it as a book project from the very beginning of the dissertation phase. Okay. Now we've covered lots of topics that have to do with your journey and the different facets of, you know, academic life and going through that. So taking all of this into consideration, um, if you had magical powers and, and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communications and media studies to change, what would you wish for? I would, I hope somebody's listening that can make my wish come true. <laughs> I'm sure I, they <laughs> I would wish for additional, so many more resources. And I know resources sounds vague and it's layered, but I believe a lot of the challenges that I see us, especially young scholars, um, junior scholars facing in terms of like Latina media studies is this lack of resources that other, other disciplines have or other subfields even. And it doesn't, a lot of it does have to do with money. Yes, unfortunately. Um, but it doesn't just boil down to money. You know, when I'm thinking of money and resources that are monetary, I oftentimes think back to my experience as a graduate student and just how unbelievably and incredibly challenging it was to even attend a conference because of how pricey that process was. You're talking registration, you're talking um, membership fees, travel and lodging. So actually one of the amazing things that the pandemic has done is that we've been able to access a lot of these places virtually, which is now somewhat at least evening that playing field because you're expected to make these networking connections and to present your work publicly in all of these various formats and all of these various areas. But a lot of times not everyone has the economic ability to do so. Um, and, you know, a lot of institutions are better than others about seeking out the places where students can get that funding, um, where students can get the support for travel, also resources in terms of um, uh, like course releases so that people can focus more on the actual research. Again, some institutions are far better at doing that than others. And of course, it has to do with money and all of that. But um, even at the graduate student level, like opportunities for fellowships, 
Um, this is something that I was actually just recently in conversation with a graduate student here about um, because all of there's so many different opportunities at various institutions in terms of fellowships and funding. And that can really dictate how the rest of your career is going to unfold. So if you have a three-year fellowship where you are devoting three years of your time as a PhD student to do nothing but research, you are going to look like a very different candidate on the market in terms of publications, um, research endeavors, research activity. So uh, resources in that sense, but also mentoring resources. And that also goes hand in hand with releases, right? Because a lot of times what ends up happening is that the people that are mentoring especially when it comes to like women of color in academia is what I'm thinking about in particular here. You end up getting all of these service requests and all of these expectations. And a lot of, a lot of those expectations also have to do with mentoring as well. So it becomes challenging there because you want to create this pipeline to receive mentorship and to get mentoring. But sometimes it's it's, it's so much on top of um, everything that you're already doing or expected to do, which is where I think it would be great to allow more of those opportunities to get releases, whether it be in terms of teaching or some type of like service release, where maybe you can channel or funnel more of that energy into some kind of like mentoring initiative or mentoring process. Because I think, although it sounds vague, resources, having more resources is just so important and so instrumental. And a lot of times it has to do with the fact that we're not necessarily seen as like a core or a staple, but more so as like, ah, I'm not trying to be funny here, but like kind of going off the title of my book, like on the periphery, these subject matters that are in addition to not necessarily central but on the periphery of these other conversations, when I think we should actually be considered and form part of that nucleus, because it, it really is where we should be situated and where we should stand. And that is how, that is one of the reasons why I think there are not a lot of, re, or not as many resources as there should be going towards our graduate students, junior faculty, and of course, other people in, in that pipeline as well. All right, thank you very much, Diana. This was a very, very thoughtful, uh, actually, reflection. And thanks a lot for a fascinating conversation. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for staying with us uh, to the end and invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Goodbye. Bye, thank you. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. 